Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful music today. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. The doctor has taken certain tests and sent them away to be read because of the holiday weekend and the backlog of patients. You won't likely hear any results for two weeks. The clock creeps along, sliding slowly at a snail's pace. John Michael, I think these front fields are way too loud, so it's feeding you back. The doctor has taken certain tests and sent them away to be read. Because of the holiday weekend and the backlog of patients, you won't likely hear any results for two weeks. The clock creeps along, sliding slowly at a snail's pace. During that torturous period of waiting, you imagine the worst and hope for the best and figure out how to settle for something in between. You replay the doctor's visit a thousand times in the middle of the night, trying to read his face. A raised eyebrow, clucks of the tongue, the wavering tone in his voice, and then your mind shifts to the technician, his guttural tones, his nervous fingers. Do any of these hold the answer or do they mean nothing at all? And how will you be able to tell the difference? You're a six-year-old girl, and you cannot wait until Christmas. Your parents have promised, or at least they have hinted, that Christmas is going to bring you a pony. You've already been riding your friend's pony since you were four years old. But you dream every night of having a pony of your own, a pony which has never been more gentle or graceful than he is in your dreams. You're picking out possible names already, Scout and Teddy Bear and Charm or Thunder. In your grandest dream, the pony is a gray gelding, but any color will do. How long until Christmas? How long, you ask your mother, and she responds with a sly grin, which indicates she might have been shopping for a Shetland. 30 days, comes her tempting reply. And every hour becomes a day, and every day becomes a week, and every week becomes a month, and the month becomes a year. How can Christmas come so slowly? You're forced to wait and ride the only riding you can do the pony is in the meadows of your mind. Time has never stood still like it does for a child waiting for a Christmas surprise. Or you've been sleeping on a cold slab of cold concrete for 41 months. Every day is the same monotonous routine. You eagerly await your one ration for the day of sticky rice, and then you wait that long line at the well to get one canteen of fresh water. The balance of every other day is spent longing for liberation. As a prisoner, you've been beaten badly on the Bataan Death March. You can only wait 41 months 
and counting. Three and a half years on concrete as a caged animal. Will you ever be released? Will you ever be home again? Sometimes the waiting time is the hardest time of all. It's the time between now and where we hope to be. Whether it's two weeks or two decades, the waiting time is the worst. The Old Testament is all about waiting, longing and looking for Messiah. The ancient Israelites were longing for the day, the great day of the Lord, when God would intervene on their behalf and God would overturn injustice, righting all wrongs and freeing them from oppression of the foreign rule. The day of the Lord was really more of an event than it was a date. It was represented as God intervening on the behalf of his people, judging the pagan nations. This was an event to end man's rebellion and begin the period of God's sovereignty. Now, the sermon today has all sorts of references. There'll be a manuscript online. I appreciate my note takers, but you'll have a hard time keeping up with the pace today. The day of the Lord. It's that hinge point that connects all of human history with the eternal kingdom of God. Sometimes the Old Testament speaks of it in plural terms like those days. Or sometimes it uses a general reference, the time for the day of the Lord. The time that is coming. Though described in various terms, the event was the same thing. It was the reign and the rule of God in human activity. Of all the elements of the day of the Lord, that we might conclude from the Old Testament perspective we can be sure that it held at least three hopes of God's people. First of all, the involvement of God acting in the here and now. The involvement of God acting in the here and the now. God was going to enter in the human sphere and God was going to be present and God was going to act. Number two, not only was God going to act in the here and now, there was judgment on God's enemies. Number two, the day of the Lord meant there would be judgment upon God's enemy. And number three, the liberation of ancient Israel from all pagan authorities. The liberation of ancient Israel from all pagan authorities. In fact, the description was one, a day of wrath, a day of anguish, a day of affliction, a day of destruction, a day of devastation, which reaches its climax Portrayed in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah describes it, a day of the trumpet and the battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. According to the prophets, all of human history was moving toward this day, the day of the Lord. And ancient Israel was praying and longing for that day to arrive, the day of the Lord. It was also to be a day of purification for God's people. The prophet had declared, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But then the question comes, who can stand the day of the Lord and who can be present when the Lord arrives? No answer is given, but the Lord himself, it says, will purify his people like a refiner's fire 
or a fuller soap. The day of the Lord therefore represents the arrival of God, God's rule, God is king, God's kingdom, and he purifies his people. The ultimate purpose of the day of the Lord is that God could be established as king. Now, the expression kingdom of God, which you saw in two of the verses there in Matthew chapter 4, the kingdom of God is an expression never used exactly like that in the Old Testament. But 41 times God is called king. It is implied that God is a king and he has a kingdom. In Psalm 29 we read, the Lord sits as king forever. Or in Isaiah chapter 6, Remember, Isaiah was fearful for his life because he said, my eyes have seen the king. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of all the armies, the Lord of hosts. God is clearly and consistently pictured as king, as a foundation of element of faith for all the Old Testament that God rules and God reigns and God is king. Zechariah says, the Lord will be king over all the earth, and the day of the Lord will be only one, and his name is the only one. From the Old, Old Testament, there are several truths about God reigning as king or the kingdom of God. First of all, it provides a universal reign of Yahweh. Everywhere, every place, God is going to be king. In fact, it includes not just Israel, but we learned that the Gentiles are included as well. That Yahweh becomes the king of everyone in every place, not only ancient Israel, but the Gentiles as well. God will make his kingdom of all those who call him Lord, regardless of their nation. There are no boundaries. All people, all people will submit to God. And the nations are included in the salvation of the kingdom. While God is already king in one sense, even in heaven, but the day will come on earth where he is king here as well. There's a second element. The kingdom is righteousness. The kingdom of God is a time of cleansing, a time of renewal in the Old Testament, a time of justice. And sometimes the righteousness of the Messiah overflows to the people. And sometimes the righteousness is found among God's people in general. But the kingdom of God ushers in a new kind of righteousness as God's will is done on earth, even as it is in heaven. There's a third element in the Old Testament, and that is the element of peace. War ceases among the nations, and there is even peace among the animals, amongst all creation. There's a paradise-like life that returns the expectations of our overflowing fruitfulness of all the fruit-bearing trees. In fact, God is at peace with man, and man is at peace with others. And that peace represents God's salvation because the king has come. Therefore, in the Old Testament... All of human history is striving toward the goal of the kingdom of God, which includes God's complete sovereignty and God's righteousness and the peaceful salvation of the world. Now we get to the New Testament. While the phrase is never actually used in the Old Testament, 
And the New Testament, the language kingdom of God is used over and over. His continuing rule on earth as encapsulated the words, the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of God, and sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven. Matthew tends to prefer the kingdom of heaven because he is so careful about how he uses God's name, he'd rather say the kingdom of heaven and substitute heaven for the name of God. But it's the same thing, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It represented a time when all that God wanted to accomplish would happen on earth as it already had in heaven, even as our Lord's prayer longed for such a day. Thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. But the real question for the Jews of the first century was, how was God's kingdom going to come? And, and when was God's kingdom going to come? And through whom was God's kingdom going to come? Ever since the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem in 597 B.C., they had longed, they had longed those who had been carried as captives into exile, though they had been released for captivity, they had always had a foreign rule over them. They wanted God to reign. They wanted God to be king of Israel and God to be king of the Gentiles, of all men. His sovereign reign meant there would be a liberation from all the evil powers. Well, how did they respond in the first century? There were several different ways. There were some who just went away and went isolated and waited for God to come. There's a Qumran community where they made the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard about these. These were Essenes, and they went off, and they lived in the wilderness by themselves, and they just went off to themselves, and they waited, and they waited, and they made their own community. They were waiting on the king to come this Qumran community that made the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are others who didn't wait, but they made a compromise. Maybe like Herod. Well, Rome is in power now. We might as well enjoy the rule and authority of Rome. Let's just make peace with the powers that be until the real king comes and hope that he accepts the peace we've made, the compromise we've made with earthly kings. Unlike the Qumran community, the other, other end of the spectrum was the zealots. They sharpened their swords and they sharpened their daggers. They went around with daggers in their cloaks and they were trying to start a war that would make the Messiah respond. <clears throat> in fact, some think that maybe Judas was like that. Then betraying the Christ, he really hoped he'd usher in the kingdom by forcing the Christ's hand to do something because he had at last been arrested by the pagan authorities. They saw the coming kingdom of God as a clash between the worldly powers, and the holy powers. The question, of course, is what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to be like the Qumran community and go hide in the caves in the wilderness and write scrolls? Is that what he's going to do? Is he going to be like Herod? Is he going to make peace with Rome and say, hey, we're stuck here for now anyway. Let's just wait until God responds. Or is he going to be like the zealots and carry the daggers in his cloak, ready to kill men who stand in the way of the arriving kingdom of God, the pagan authorities? What happens with Jesus is he takes a position that no one ever expected. He didn't behave like the Qumran community and hide in the wilderness. He didn't like Herod. He didn't make a deal with the present pagans. And he didn't act like a zealot, ready to fight and have war. 
by what Jesus said was this. Repent. In me, the kingdom is already here. Unlike any other response in first century Judaism, Jesus said, the kingdom has started. Look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. Every scholar worth his salt will tell you that you can summarize the preaching of Jesus in these simple words. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, now remember we can say God there, the kingdom of God has arrived. Of all the sermons that Jesus ever preached, this is the summary of them all. Repent, for with me the kingdom of God is at hand. Look at verse 23. What did Jesus do after he calls disciples? He traveled around Galilee, that sea there, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What did he preach? That the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God has arrived. And he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. What Jesus was saying is this. He was sticking to God's plan, the age-old plan, that God would press forth his sovereignty. But the surprise in this rabbi Jesus was, he said, the kingdom has already started and then his parables were all about this kingdom of God that had arrived. Instead of coming all at once, it's like a mustard seed. It starts small, and then it grows, and surprising large, and all the birds of the sky can rest in its branches. Or the kingdom of God is like the pearl of great price. It is so valuable, you will go and sell everything that you have in order to obtain it. So over and over again, when Jesus is telling the parables, he's telling them the kingdom, the reign and rule of God has arrived with me, and this is what the kingdom is like. Those who heard his message, they heard a new way to deal with the kingdom of God, God's final reign and rule. In fact, we're starting a study tonight, and you've been studying some of your Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the ethic of the kingdom of God. It's a seabed for his teaching about the kingdom, where he tells the disciples, do not resist evil. Turn the other cheek when someone slaps you. He's declaring that his followers should not be like the zealots who hide the daggers and are ready to fight, but rather his is a peaceful kingdom, the kingdom of God. He'll tell them in that Sermon on the Mount, you are to be the light and you are to be the salt of the earth. You're like a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, the kingdom of Jesus found its roots in ancient Israel's longing for the day of the Lord. But it grew in a new direction. And now Jesus was saying it wasn't just ancient Israel, but rather it was those who were circumcised of heart. It was the church that was his kingdom. It was people from every tribe and nation who would be part of the liberation of the kingdom of God. It was a reconstituted Israel. And they would experience some suffering, but God would eventually vindicate them. Whether Jesus is commanding directly, like here in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or teaching them about the prophets from the synagogue, 
His message was the same. That which the prophets have spoken of, it has begun in me. Turn over to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we have that programmatic passage where Jesus is preaching. He's in Nazareth in his own hometown in a synagogue. They bring out the scroll and Jesus enrolls it and he, he begins to read Isaiah 61. Look, I want you to look there in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Look at verse 20. Don't miss how big this is. He closes the book. Literally, he rolled the scroll back up. And he gave it back to the synagogue attendant who put the scroll back in the case. And he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. What is Jesus going to say? This popular rabbi who's given sight to the blind and casting out the demons, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? He's read the, the prophet from Isaiah when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon the one to preach the gospel. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. Today, you don't have to wait any longer. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Make no mistake about it, ancient Israel, for centuries, Jews had longed for the arrival of the rule of God as king. And they reacted in different ways. They were tired of waiting. And Jesus comes and says, wait no longer. You need to repent for the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is here and is here now. Luke chapter 4, they don't respond too well to his sermon. They really don't respond too well at all. Look at verse 28. The synagogue, they were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up to cast him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill which their city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. And he passed through their midst. God has to rescue his son because they are ready to crucify him. You remember when John the baptizer's in prison and he's wondering himself if his cousin Jesus is really the one like he himself had proclaimed him to be. And he says, how will we know? And Jesus says, take this word back to John. You tell John, Luke 7, go report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The crowd was so shocked. They knew that this rabbi was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to have the authority of God, that he himself had claimed he had ushered in the kingdom of God. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Or today, Isaiah has been fulfilled in me. What he's saying is this, that Jesus himself, by his presence and his actions, Jesus was confessing that he was the long-awaited Messiah. 
In him, all the hopes, the messianic hopes had finally been completed. And God's kingdom had come in him. And today was a promised time. Now, Jesus made clear it had not come as they had expected. It came, but it didn't come yet in the blaze of glory. It didn't come yet with the punishment and the fire of God. Rather, it came as a mustard seed. It was the beginning of the kingdom of God, and ultimately Jesus looked for that full consummation of the kingdom. We lived in the town, the time of the now the kingdom has come, and not yet has it fully come. In fact, in Luke chapter 17, they asked Jesus, when is God's kingdom coming? And Jesus responds in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Jesus said, nor they say, look, here it is, or there it is, or behold, the kingdom of God is right now in your midst. The kingdom of God is a time when God will overthrow the powers of evil and the power of darkness. And what did Jesus do? He cast the demons out. He placed them in the swine. He cast them out. He let them have no power. The demons had no power because God's rule and God's reign had arrived upon earth. And the demons had to move over and make room for the Messiah. Now the Jews believed in the doctrine of two ages. There's this age, and there's the age to come. This age was not an age that had given them favor, but rather they were looking for the age to come, which is called sometimes the age of the resurrection. They were looking for this unfolding of God's activity in history in a manner that had never been considered by the Jews. In fact, Paul describes us right now as this way. We're those upon, 1 Corinthians 10, we're those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is the present age, and yet the kingdom of God, the new age, the age of the resurrection has already started, and we await for the full consummation and the return of our Jesus. Jesus realized he started the kingdom, but it was not fully arrived. And in his final coming, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, would arrive in complete glory Thy kingdom come on earth fully like it's done in heaven. We're looking for that day. To call Jesus Lord is to call him king. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul is preaching in Ephesus in Acts 19. It says Paul's preaching, quote, persuading them about the kingdom of God, which is the word of the Lord. When Paul preaches, he's preaching about the arrival of the kingdom of God, which is about the Lord, the Lord who is king. Also, at the end of the book of Acts, when Paul's in prison, what does Luke say Paul is doing? He's preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord or the King Jesus. Paul's preaching the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? It is when Jesus is king, when Jesus is Lord. Or even in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter describes salvation this way. Salvation is entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then finally, the end of the whole New Testament, where we have the, the blast of the seventh trumpet and John's apocalypse, which we call Revelation. 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Every time we sing the hallelujah chorus of Handel's Messiah, we're reminded that it means the kingdom has come and Jesus is king of king and Lord of lords. Listen to John again. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Yahweh and of his Christ, Jesus. And he will reign, what does the song say over and over again? Forever and ever and ever. Like a patient anxiously awaiting the results of the important medical test. Like a tortured POW longing for liberation. The ancient Israelites were waiting and longing for the arrival of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God meant God's reign and God's rule on earth just like it was in heaven. Then Jesus shows up on the scene and says, the kingdom is here. Not like you expected yet, but it started. It's a little mustard seed that will grow into a grand tree. It is the pearl of great price for which you will go and sell everything you have and devoted to the kingdom. Oh, the kingdom's not yet here fully, but it will be. But with me. The kingdom has begun. Yes, his first crown was a crown of thorns. But when the kingdom comes in its full consummation, every crown that can be found will be placed on his head, and every jewel and every precious metal and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, and they will all shout together, Jesus is Lord. Jesus arrives on the scene in Galilee and says to the little fishing villages around, repent, the kingdom of God has come in a way you never, ever expected. For with me, God has stepped into human history. and You'll finally and forever be liberated from the dark powers. No longer does sin have power over you. No longer does death have power over you. Why, the lame will leap. The blind will see. To call Jesus Lords and say the kingdom of God has come in our midst. And yet to know that the arrival of his kingdom in the greatest sense is something the church prays for and longs for and looks for as we nourish the progression of God's kingdom. Maybe you're watching by television this morning or live stream. Maybe you're here in this great sanctuary. Maybe you have never uttered those words, Jesus is Lord. Jesus doesn't really give you a lot of options. He arrives and says, I am the king. The kingdom, the kingdom has arrived, and the kingdom can only arrive if a king is here. The kingdom of God is here, and you need to repent. For he is indeed the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And when you discover this kingdom, Jesus says, it's worth everything that you have. You go and you sell it all and you do give up everything else in order that you might obtain this kingdom, this pearl of great price. If you're here this morning or you're watching this morning and it's your day to say, Jesus is Lord, I want Jesus to be my king. I realize with the arrival of the Messiah that the kingdom has started and the king is here and I want to be part 
of his followers, those that he gathers, the new Israel, those circumcised of heart, not necessarily of flesh, those from every tribe and nation who've uttered those words, Jesus is Lord. You remember when he was crucified in three different languages, Pilate had it placed, Jesus, the what? The king of the Jews. Let's pray. Oh God, we're here and we acknowledge the greatest of all Jesus' teachings this morning, that we are to repent for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Maybe there's someone here this morning that needs to proclaim Jesus Christ as her Lord or his Savior. Maybe there's others who need to become part of this church, which acknowledges the final kingdom has already begun 2,000 years ago. As Paul would say, we live in the overlap of the ages, the now and the not yet. In Jesus' name.